Look at us. Look at us on the scoreboard. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Welcome to Drinking with Authors, the Literary Briefs Edition. Woo! Okay. I've decided I am as soon as the Rona is over getting a live studio audience just to cheer when I tell them to cheer. This is my new my new goal in life. So um, I'm your host, Erica Lance. With me today is... J.M. Paquette. And our wonderful guest is Jennifer Wisdom. Yay! Hi. So, thanks for having me back. Yeah, so full disclosure for our audience is in the middle of your literary briefs episode, we had a thunderstorm because we're in Florida, and it literally shut off my power for four hours. So in the middle of this brilliant um, uh, discussion, the world ended here, as it at least the people in primitive times would thought it would, and uh, we didn't get to finish. So we're doing it again. Right on. Very glad. Okay, let's talk about what we're drinking. So I have discovered Perrier and strawberry, and I've put gin in it. The gesture I just made may have been how much gin. Nobody can see that, but there's a lot of gin in this drink. So what I are you can drinking? See that. Uh, I'm drinking uh, Jack and ginger. I'm a little low That's right one now. Of my but favorites. Yeah, Jack it's, it's old standby, classic. There is actually, and then I'm sorry, uh, Jen. What are you drinking? I'm drinking a lime bubbly because I can't drink alcohol. Whatever. Okay, good. That's why I'm going to skip that. I, I actually, there is a whiskey called Misunderstood that is a ginger whiskey. You write that down. Ooh. Ginger whiskey, Misunderstood. One of my favorite things absolutely ever. And it um, it goes great with the ginger. It is oh, nice. Okay. I, so, I really like the ginger flavored stuff. There's another one that I can't remember but the name of, but it has this gorgeous tall bottle and it's a ginger liqueur. And a friend of mine had showed me that if you take a champagne glass and put some ginger liqueur in it, fill the rest of it up with uh, champagne and then add some candy ginger, you get a triple ginger explosion in your mouth. And it is amazing. I'm writing this down almost immediately. Hold on. I am such a ginger fan. I do, I do ginger shots every day. I'm that person. I'm a, yeah, ginger liqueur, champ, uh, and then candy ginger, which you can get from Trader Joe's. So look, we've, we've explained. Yep. And it's called Domaine de Canton Ginger Liqueur. Okay, as we're discussing all the drinking on the drinking wall. <laughs> okay, this is literary briefs, and we're not in our underwear, but we are going to ask rapid fire questions. At least at the start. Yeah, whatever. There's a lot of judgment from you, Missy. I don't want to hear it. Okay, so um, the first question is, what is your favorite book? Okay, my favorite book, the only book that I think I've read five times, is The Fifth Sacred Thing by Starhawk. Oh. This is, I love this book. I don't know that anyone else in the world has ever heard of it, but it's amazing. So Starhawk has written all of these books about Wicca. And I don't even know how this book came to my attention. Somebody told me about it in a while. It was published in the early 90s. I probably read it in the late 90s. And it is a combination of my two favorite genres. Which are? Which are <laughs> utopian and dystopian. So it describes this wor world sometime in the near future, which is looking a lot closer as we talk now in the, in the 15 years since 20 years since I read it. But it's looking a lot closer. It is uh, where there was some 
challenge in the United States, and the Dominionists took over and implemented religious law and shut down a whole lot of different parts of the U.S. The dystopian part uh, in, in the story is based in Los Angeles, obviously, um, where people are fighting over water and the Dominionists have made all these rules and made it very difficult for people to to live. The utopian part is based in San Francisco, again, obviously, where they've created this kind of world that's cut off from the rest of the country, and yet they're um, starting to get some attacks from the South, and they have to deal with that. Oh, and wow. it is so fascinating. It is so fascinating. Wow. Yeah. No, definitely in the time of the Rona that we're in right now, I think a lot of, I keep joking that I feel like we're, or uh, the writers are become oracles of what, what has come to pass because, you know, working in um, human resources, which I do when I'm not drinking and knowing things is, um, or maybe while I am, nobody knows. Um, but I find that it's, fascinating that you know we plan for pandemics and stuff we do all this planning for pandemics and all of that went to complete crap like nobody planned for this to happen the way this happened so it's really fascinating when you read you're reading um books and stuff that were written in the past even if like jonathan mayberry had one published in january or something that was called pandemic like he had no he wrote that like because he's um, like four years ago or whatever when he wrote it and now it's coming to pass to be exactly as they said it was in the book okay least favorite book hands down lord jim by joseph conrad (laughs) you've seen it jen tell us why (laughs) (laughs) what is that little snarky look you have (laughs) okay tell us why that's your least favorite book but yes so this was one of those high school assignments to read Lord Jim. And I was pretty, I'm pretty open as far, like I read a lot of different kinds of books and that was the only book in high school that I never finished. I just could not get through it. It was, the prose was so stilted, the writing was awful and it tells this winding story. And I just, I tried to read it again when I was about 25 and was like, yep, I was right when I was 15. This really sucks. And then I tried again at about 35 and now I don't even bother anymore. Like, forget it. But I just, it it tells a bit of a winding story. So I get that. But at the same time, I just found the whole thing like slogging through a marsh full of alligators and mosquitoes. (laughs) Have you read other Conrad? Like, uh, did you read Heart of Darkness or... I did read Heart of Darkness. That was also an assignment. It was also painful, maybe like the same bog with mosquitoes, but no alligators. Like, so it was slightly better. And then of course, with Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now, I mean, like that one, I could, I could kind of latch onto it a little more, Mm -hmm. but Lord Jim, man, that was the worst. You you don't get any boats or anything for that swamp. You just have to, yeah. (laughs) At least Heart of of Darkness has some swimming parts, but then, you know, at least you get a boat. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Jen here is PhD in English literature, so she gets to read all of these books with so nice. much fun and vigor. She's super they're not, excited. They're not all wonderful. Like, there's different books for different people. Conrad is is not my favorite. So, oh my goodness. Okay, can you um, put down a book? Like, if you're reading it, obviously you put this one down, but you kept picking it back up again. 
Will you try to slog through a book or will you chuck it if it's terrible? Uh, I'll chuck it. Yeah, I will totally let go of it. Do you find that more as you have gotten older, your like patience level for reading has gone down where you're like, no, I need, you know, I used to give it half the book and now I only give it the first chapter. Yeah. You know, I, I really appreciate my high school English teachers. Like they really taught me a lot about English. I mean, I still don't appreciate Lord Jim, but other than that one, that was, you know, it's good. And we'd have to go into these series of books for AP English and go into the literary criticisms. And it really, in looking at that whole set of literary criticisms for any particular book, like Cry the Beloved Country or something, we'd have to look at how other people reviewed it. And that helped me really dig in more deeply to a book and think about all the different, all the symbolism and all the, the themes and all everything that's going on in the book in a different way. And now that I'm not, obviously I don't, I'm not, I'm not still in AP English. Um, I just read for pleasure and I just get so irritated sometimes. Like I, if I'm in a bookstore, which I haven't been in a while, of course, I will like look at the first few pages. And if I don't like the first few pages, forget it. I'm just not interested. And even if now that I'm getting books through that, through apps or I'm looking at them on my phone, I'll still get a few pages in and be like, ah, I'm done. Screw this. Wow. Are, are you a paper, paper book reader or do you, do you mind the screen or? Uh, I don't mind. I'll take, I'll take anything. Um, I have a lot of, a lot of books. Um, and I used to always, when, when I was in school and when I was, you know, riding the subway before we had iPhones and stuff like that, I would always have a paperback with me. Um, since then, once I was in New York and riding the subway a lot, I would read a lot online, um, or on my phone. I actually finished Anna Karenina on my phone, like four sentences at a time on the subway. What do you want? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Just every morning, every night, I would take the subway to work and take it home and just flip open my, my phone and read Anna Karenina, which was great. And then I realized I wasn't reading as much during the pandemic, which is uh, somehow I, I made this connection and got uh, an app, Libby, that'll help collect, connect me to my local library. And so now I'm downloading books and reading all the time. And I love it. It makes me so happy. I, th- I think that's awesome. Um, I, I like the idea of paper books and stuff like that. And all uh, my paper books that I have like behind me here and stuff, Besides some for work I have to read are all books that are signed by authors. Like I get the signed copy, Uh you know, from author friends and stuff like that, or even kind of big deals that I go find at conventions. But I was, I was talking about this. I use my Kindle so much because if I fall asleep, it will, the book gets crushed or it hits me. (laughs) Yes. You can get wounded reading in bed. Yeah. That's yeah. how you know there's only a few more pages left in you when it smacks you in the <laughs> face at night. You're like, all right, just just a couple more. No, I like my Kindle eventually goes dark and I'm like, do I remember reading this page? Like, it's it's a whole different world. Do you need a happy ending in the books you read? No. No? no. What genres do you like to read? So you showed us your favorite book. That's not a, a, a heavily fulfilled genre out there. <laughs> No, and honestly, I haven't read um, the uh, the recent book where they made the the um, Handmaid's Tale. I haven't. I think I read that many years ago, but I have not reread it recently. I actually brought a few of my favorite books to show. Oh. You. So one is Zami, a new spelling of my name, by Audre Lorde. 
And I, I think of books as having a great story most of the time or great writing. And this one has both. And the, the few pages in here where Audre Lorde, lesbian, active African-American poet who died of cancer, she, where she talks about not being able to see and getting glasses and learning to read, that chapter is just so beautifully written. And the way she describes it and holding her mom's hand and how everything went from blurry to clear and her love of books, like that is just amazing. So that's a good story and good writing. I think even though I've reread The Fifth Sacred Thing quite a bit, it's a good story. I mean, the writing, it's a good B, but I think it's not quite at A-level writing, but I like it. Okay, what else? Uh, a History of Love, Nicole Krauss. Love this book. Um, and I would say this is excellent story and excellent writing. And this I was reading um, on my way. I was in um, Australia and I was finished. I like I had to keep putting it down because, of course, I'm trying to pay attention to Australia. So finally got on the plane. I was with my then partner and we were um, finally got in the air. Everything settled down. Plane is super quiet. We're settled in for like a 10 hour flight. And then I lean over and I'm like, this book. And I'm crying. And my partner's like, oh, my God, are we okay? Is the plane going? And I'm like, oh, it's just the book is so sad. So, yeah. But, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love all of that. Yeah. And then one more that I totally love, Justin Gardner's Sophie's World. And this one is a, it's a novel that's also educational because it walks the characters through philosophy. And it's, it says at the bottom, a novel about the history of philosophy. And I just found it really compelling. Oh, my goodness. Well, these are kind of, I don't want to say heavy reads. What is the word I'm looking at? These are not fluff reads. These are not Harlequin romance novels. <laughs> no, 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 I don't have much time for those. I mean, I, I just, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, I just, I've never been. I mean, every now and then I'll pick up a book like the Sophie Kinsella books about like shopping and girlfriends and stuff. You know, I'll read that every now. I mean, if that's the only thing around, I'll read it because it, you know, my eyes feel better when they're going across a bunch of words. But eh, it's it's like it's like the People magazine of books. It's like Doritos of books. I don't want that. Well, some people like Doritos. I'm just going to say there's some people no, that like Doritos, of course. you know, you need, and there's you need a mix. Yeah. It's it's totally true. Okay, we talked about your writing on the last podcast, but um, what is a, a pet peeve that you have when you're a reader? Because you're a writer, you've studied this a lot. You just talked about studying the criticism of things. Um, oh wow, that was a gin. That was gin. Okay, just I lost my train of thought for a moment. My drunk gnome I fell asleep during the process of doing that in my brain. Um, how, what about like when you're reading a story, will you go and I'm done? Like this is like your pet peeves as a reader. Yeah, I have two and I don't want to start any fights. You can start okay. fights. It's okay. It's your podcast. Okay. You're allowed to start any okay. fights you want. It's virtual. So the first one is the overuse of adverbs. If every time anyone spoke voraciously and unmatched adverb. You don't speak voraciously. What the hell is that? What, what are you trying to say here? Or like every time they ran quickly or they did this in this way and every single verb has an adverb that drives me nuts. So that's one. 
to me, because it's, you got to mix it up, you know, in the whole um, saying it, uh, showing it, not saying it, like that's important too. And and using consistent use of adverbs, like in every single sentence, to me, that's just lazy. You got to, you got to mix it up. Easy for me to say as a nonfiction writer where I don't have characters to develop, but there's that. The second one that really bugs me, the Oxford comma. I People don't use the Oxford comma. It makes me nuts. Thank you, Jen. You okay. get me. Yes. I was going to say, comma all the way. it matters. It matters. It and does matter. Like, most of the time it doesn't. I was like, yeah, until the time when it does. And then you just totally change the meaning of your sentence. Right. And I, like, I'll read something, like a list of things, and they don't have an Oxford comment, and I'll have to read it, like, three times and try to figure, are these two, is it, like, this one, that one, and then these two things go together? Like, what are we talking about? Is this an example of that one? Is this yeah. just a poor sentence structure? Yeah. And that really irritates me. I'm I'll tell you. you, Jen had a happy dance the day that court case came out in, was it New York? I want to say it was New York. It was like milk delivery to some. It was in Maine. Delivery. It was the milk, the milk truck. Yeah. And the comma, see the comma made the difference. And they actually cited and had to pay hundreds of thousands or millions in overtime fees because of an, uh, the lack of an Oxford comma in the employee handbook. Because they listed three things. And when you don't put a comma, the two things that come after the first, like if you do thing one, comma, thing two, and thing three, then thing two and thing three are examples of thing one. And the way they had it listed, yeah. they were like, well, thing two and thing three are examples of thing one. And thing one gives us overtime. So thank you very much. Right on. That is great. No, I, was, I, I love it. It was great. And Jen, I remember because she sent me the story and she's like, See, like, <laughs> ever, ever since Jen started, I I don't I think I for editors I I put way too many comma. I'm just I comma everywhere and I'll let like them start out commas they want and don't want it the story. I'm like here I'll overuse the comma to make sure that I don't underuse the comma. Well, and I have my own writing picadillo that I'm sure irritates other people, which is I love semicolons. Somehow that semicolon lesson in grammar school or something just really hit me. So I do a lot of like, blah, 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 semicolon, however, comma, blah, blah, blah. And I'll, I'll put the whole sentence together. And I, I will share on this show because I know you will appreciate this. I received an award from a professional editor. It's like a little piece of paper, but still, I'll take it, of elegant use of the semicolon. Yes. Thank Nicely you. Nicely done. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. And I still treasure that. And I mentioned it to her like 20 years later. And she was just like, oh, my God, I remember that sentence. It was beautiful. <laughs> well, I think a semicolon is a very heavily underused correctly piece yes. of grammar. And it's I think more than the wink in a smiley face, like bring it back. Yeah. No. And I it's it's interesting because um, when you look at how. I feel just the English language has deteriorated in the last 10 years into how to, because, you know, the, the Oxford car, all this stuff, when you talk about the newspaper and you talk about shortening, I'm going to get on topic. Jen's just going to love. Okay. When you talk about the newspaper and how it kind of shortened a lot of the English language to fit on the page, right? 
And then you, we hit this thing of expanding. We started going, no, this is cool. It's expanded again. And then Twitter came into being. And we went, if it's more than 145 characters, we have zero interest in hearing about it. So shorten everything you're saying because you've got this much space to tell people things. Well, and, and emoticons too, emojis. So now instead of being able to explain it with words, I just use a picture. I, yeah. I teach, and that's one of the yeah. struggles. My students don't have a vocabulary. They, they're like, well, I just put pictures. And I was like, yeah, but English has so many words available. Try and describe it with the words instead. And they, then they resort to punctuation. Everything is exclamation point, question mark, exclamation right. point. I was like, no, yeah. use the word. Or the words poop emoji, exclamation like, point. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> poop emoji. <laughs> <laughs> And I still remember, again, I I was very highly influenced by my high school English teachers, and I had an English teacher who was, uh, if I remember correctly, she was probably just about to retire when I was in her class, and she one day railed against the use of the M-dash and said that it was lazy and people should not use it. It was the laziest form of punctuation, and I just remember her passion with that. And like, do not use that in any of your papers with me because I will immediately mark you down. If you can't find another way to say it, then maybe you shouldn't be in this class. I mean, she was just seriously pissed about the use of the M-dash. So I I feel like in some ways, like building on her legacy with my passionate positivity about the semicolon. I'm just excited if people know how to use it right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, I'm sure you're, you know, it's like the words that keep getting added to the dictionary because they're used all the time, irregardless. Oh, that was a sad day. Yeah. I saw that in the news the other day. Yeah, that's, that's not okay. I agree. I I correct. There are certain words that I correct people and I can't even stop myself. It's like an automatic response when they're like, irregardless, regardless, like, just right. Well, right. I, I think of it like flammable. We just gave up. We were like flammable, inflammable. It catches on fire either way. Like, <laughs> But I feel like it should be in the dictionary to say the correct usage is regardless. It regardless well, has become a word because people are using it. But if you're using it, you're wrong. But the it should OED say that will have right that. there. It'll, it says like the traditional, you know, this is a, a, a misinterpretation of the correct version of the word. But I don't think Webster has that. Well, misinterpretation or not traditional, that that's pussyfooting around. Like, they really need to get, tell them they're wrong. But, I don't know. I'm more of a, I'm, I'm, I'm less of a prescriptivist, more of a descriptivist. Like, how, how is the language being used? If, if people have decided that's what that sound means, then I, I guess that's what that sound All means. Right. I, I, I respect that. <laughs> it, it makes me sad because of, I love words and I, I want some sort of structure, but I, I kind of, I, I get why they had to add it. You know, things yeah. change. It's it's fine. We don't have a board in America. You know, English, the language doesn't have a board that tells us what sounds we can make. Like, you know, France and French and Spanish, there's like a linguist yeah. board where they're like, no, no, you may not make that noise. And, right. you know, especially <laughs> Americans, we, I mean, English isn't even our official language. We don't have one. So I don't know. Can you tell me I can't make a sound? You can, oh, we no, can't we even can't. tell you to wear a mask. So that's all. Right. Well, <laughs> Exactly. We can tell you that we don't recognize that sound meaning having the same meaning that you think it means. That's true. Yeah. You At some point it breaks down. You have That's to have true. rules. What do you think it means? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's my Princess Bride moment of the day. Okay, so rapid fire questions. Next one. Um, you don't write fiction. Do you want to write fiction? I do, and we we did have we this discussion about that, that a little bit. Yes, because I um, I've been writing nonfiction for a long time. Uh, back when I was a kid, even before my famous high school English teachers, uh, I was writing a lot of fiction as a like fifth grader and sixth grader, and really found that a lot of fun. So I do have a project inspired in large part by you from our oh. last time conversation, and I got started on it. It started doing some research on it. I just have so many things on my plate. I haven't been able to take it too much farther, but it's there. It'll get done. I I want you to update me about this. I'm super excited to hear that. And I know how busy you are because you lecture. What do you, how do you feel about the lecture, the not lecturing or talking? I don't think it's, are we supposed to say lecturing anymore? What do we say? Is it speaking. public speaking. speaking? Public speaking there. Cause lecturing sounds terrible. It sounds like something we don't want to participate in. I think lecturing yeah. So what's it like doing the amount of public speaking you do? I love it. I I really love it. I mean, I I still get that sense of like anxiety. I, I still get anxiety before I speak, regardless of what it is. But I gave a speech last weekend to about, I think there were about 160 people on Zoom. And it was so awesome. I had so much fun. I had I like got worried I was bouncing around too much. And that was talking about... Uh, intergenerational communication and how millennials and Gen Z have different, have some different values and different ways of communicating compared to Gen X and uh, baby boomers. And it was so fascinating and there were great questions and people seemed interested. That's great. I love it. Love it. Love public speaking. No, that's awesome. I love public speaking too. I find that I have to have bullet points and I can't, nobody can hand me a speech. If you hand me something you want me to say, you're doomed. You're doomed. I get stuck in the, the, like, I can memorize, like I used to do acting. I can memorize a script. Like I can yep. do that yep. and then just go, or I can do bullet points and I can absolutely talk around the things that we talked about on the bullet points. But if you go, here's what you say, I'm the worst public speaker in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm okay with like reading out loud. I mean, I, I, I am technically proficient at reading out loud, but that is definitely not my preferred mode of communication because that's either, it doesn't allow me to, to, to go off the cuff. I mean, I, I much prefer that. And like you, I, I generally set up bullet points and I know what I want to talk about and, but every time it's different. So I've given some speeches four or five times and each time they're, they're somewhat different. I still get the main points covered. This people still are going to learn the same things, but I give different examples and I, I mix it up based on audience reaction. It has been a little different doing that on zoom. And actually it's been quite less anxiety provoking, even oh. if there's more people on there, because it's just that the kind of the theater of getting dressed and like, are these shoes comfortable? And do I have to go to the bathroom and walking on stage and lights and people's faces and coughing in the audience and whatever that, that kind of makes me more nervous than zoom. And I was here, like, I had like a nice shirt and jacket on and I had shorts on and I was like super comfortable. And I know like I'm in my house and I'm comfortable and nobody can throw tomatoes at me through the internet. So I'm good. I mean, not that they usually do, but I was going to say, is this, is that a frequent yeah. event? No, no, no. 
No. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, I, I just I, I had a weird question pop into my head, which is of the books that you've read that have been made into movies, how do you feel about those? Ooh. I don't know why that popped into my head, but there yeah. it arrived. So it's out there. Yeah. So I um self-disclosure, I grew up in the South. So Florida and Georgia. And when you're in the South, Gone with the Wind is treated like history. And I joke that like it wasn't until I left the South that I realized the Civil War wasn't close. Like it was not this accidental, oops, we 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 almost won. And I grew up going to like national parks and like the South will rise again kind of crap. So I read Gone with the Wind because if you go up south of the Mason-Dixon line, you have to. It's just one of those things. And I saw the movie several times. And, you know, there was just this sense of, you know, this is amazing and it's beautiful and whatnot. And then I saw it with a friend from who grew up in Michigan who happened to study violence against women. And watching it with her, I immediately was like, oh, hell no. This is all bullshit. This is ridiculous. And especially the scene where Rhett, like, tells her she needs to be, I don't know, kissed often or whatever. And he grabs Scarlett and takes her upstairs. My friend, like we had to stop the movie because my friend was so horrified and just like, holy crap. I, like, why do you like this movie? It's all racist and sexist as shit. And I was like, oh yeah, right. I grew up in that, which is why this didn't seem that crazy. But it's it's crazy. This is fuck bonkers. Like this is bullshit. Nobody should watch this stuff and think that it's anywhere close to real. And then I heard one of those um probably before that I heard the Steve Harvey, I think it was Steve, is that the right guy? I don't know, the Paul Harvey, sorry, not Steve Harvey, the family I was like, guy. Family going the celebrity route. Okay. Sorry, Paul Harvey guy. He was telling the story about this little girl who grew up with uh, close to her grandfather and her grandfather would tell her all these fabulous stories about the civil war and how valiantly they fought and how important the cause was. And then one day she came running home from school crying and said, grandpa, I just found out of school that we lost the civil war. And that was, you know, Margaret Mitchell. And that's the rest of the story, whatever. And I'm like, okay, once again, fuck bunkers. That is wrong. That is just fucked up. And I'm not, no. So I, there's, uh, uh-uh. I feel embarrassed that I even watched it before. No, I know I grew up in that culture. I, it, it was viewed as normal. It was viewed as so romantic that they're all lying and scheming to cheat each other and stuff. Like that's messed up. No, it, it is. And it's, it's funny that you, not funny. That's not the word. It's interesting. You said that. Cause it just made me think that we're right now, we have a lot of people in different Um, because of different things that are going on in our country and the world at this time, going back in time to apologize for things that they did back in time, right? right? But at that time, there was an ill education on what this is, you know what I mean? Because if you transport back in time, I don't think they went, you know, this is this thing. And I'm not I'm not just fine gone with wind at all. Don't get me started. Right. That is the, I didn't even bother with the book. It's too fucking long. But um, it's I look at that stuff and I go to some of the stuff and I understand being willing to acknowledge that that wasn't correct. But at the same time, we're not willing to look at how we've educated ourselves and changed our viewpoints. And we constantly do that to go. That was this this view because you look at a lot of the movie. You can take a ton of the movies 
from back then, and they had a very similar theme on men towards women, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I I saw Flash, a few years ago, I saw Flashdance again, because I (laughs) I had these two young men, gay men who were my neighbors and they had never seen flash dance. And so I felt it was my job as auntie to like show them flash dance. And they were just like, Oh, this is amazing. And about all the dancing and the everything, they were very thrilled that I could contribute to their gay education. At the same time, they were like, why is this book? So why is this movie so misogynist? And I didn't catch any of that when I first saw it, when it first came out, but yeah, her boyfriend's a dick. I mean, there's a lot of bullshit in that movie, too, that and, and I'm it was difficult for me. You know, they're focusing on the singing and the dancing, which is great. And I'm focusing on like what what was in my mind? Like, how has this affected me that I saw this stuff, that this was common on television and movies? This was everywhere. I grew up steeped in this. So, I mean, I try not to be too hard on myself when you grow up steeped in that. You know, we we all none of us are immune from culture and from all of that stuff that's happening. But at the same time, yeah, I don't want to be like that. And to your point about education, I don't think that's really a goal for a lot of folks. I mean, oh, no, I actually yeah. yesterday was talking to a reporter from Bloomberg day job stuff. And she was talking about a uh, culture um, of security. And, you know, I work in the cybersecurity field, um, as part of my day job. And one thing I told her was I said, um, cause I also volunteer at a school and I'm glad I'm saying all these things, making me sound like a great professional. While I'm drinking gin. <laughs> uh, sure. But one of the things of volunteering at the school that I realized, cause I volunteer at a high school. Right. And for a long time, I was getting so pissed off at these kids at just the sheer things that they don't know. And they don't understand how to respect their teachers and stuff. Like it's very different. And I had, it, it was, uh, I was sitting there talking to us, we were talking about a subject and there was a student there and he goes, why do you think this is the student and not the parents? And this was like a 17 year old kid. And literally I felt like I had been punched with one of those cartoon giant, like yep. boxing things that pop out of a box, you know? <laughs> and I was like, wow. And I said to the girl on um, yesterday, I was like, What we have to do to change anything, we're not going to change adults, really. I hope we can, and there's the exception, not the rule, for changing adult views on things. Not a lot of adults necessarily change their views easy at all. We have to go back and change how we are teaching students. And on that topic, we were talking about analyzing information because of what's going on in the world right now. People have a ton of opinions on what their neighbor said about the pandemic, you know, or what their friend on Facebook and you know, she was in New York, and you know, we're in Florida, and I was like, let me just, you know, down here, it's not happening. Like, we don't right. have a pandemic. We have the highest statistics in the United States, but it, it's not happening. Go ahead yeah. and ask anybody, including our governor. This is what we're doing. And I said, you have to cheat, uh, 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 teach kids how to analyze pieces of information. Yeah and how to find other pieces of information to analyze against. And that has to be taught, because otherwise, like, Flashdance was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. I love Flashdance, but I see exactly what you're talking about. But I'll tell you, I didn't even think about it until you just said that. Because I, I wasn't, I always thought, here's this fierce, independent woman who's going against the norm to work in a male-dominated field and then standing up for herself, and she has this dream 
there's a bunch of stuff I realized later about her being kind of a whiny pain in the ass near some of the stuff. But you saying that, I can look back and go, yeah, no, I never even thought about it that way. It's it's true, I think, with uh, if I go back and look at a lot of the movies that I, as a kid, I, I had, I'm sure I could rip Dirty Dancing apart in 2.5 seconds for very similar reasons, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's interesting you say that, but I think we literally have to, as a society, start teaching critical analytical thinking to children because we're not going to cheer this boat the other way right now is never going to happen all right and i i agree with you and i same thing with books i don't it's not like i expect all movies to have a happy ending or that they all you know display positive morality or that the the villains are always clearly defined so everyone knows that they're bad or whatever you know i'm not saying that but i think pumping out so much media without the accompanying critical thinking skills and analytic skills is a challenge. And when I say I think a lot of people aren't interested in education, I don't mean higher ed. I don't mean getting PhDs or master's degrees. I mean, I've found sometimes, not everybody, but sometimes people just don't have curiosity around the world Mm -hmm. about why things are the way they are. They just kind of soak it in and that's it. And I think that's really dangerous in what's happening now where you have a number of different groups, let's call them, that are actively putting out inaccurate information or twisting facts or claiming that people who <laughs> who are telling the truth are, are, you know, truth has a well-known liberal bias, as Stephen Colbert said. So kind of they're, they're sending out all this information and just like me watching Flashdance when I was younger, like everybody's just absorbing it. And I think there really needs to be a better uh, approach to teaching that kind of stuff. I remember a, a unit in middle school. I was like serious nerd, in case you can tell. But I love school. <laughs> I really got a lot of school. Uh, but I remember us having a, a some sort of segment on understanding uh, commercials. And it was an example of like, this is one type of commercial where you're using a well-known spokesperson to say, buy this product. And then here's another one where you're using an everyday, I don't know, person person working at home or a, a dentist or whatever, it is nine out of dentist, 10 dentists or whatever. And then here's how it's appealing to your emotion. Here's how it's appealing to your reason, all this other stuff. And I remember going home and saying like, mom, commercials, like they're all designed just to sell you stuff. And she was like, Yeah. I'm like, well, I didn't get that before. I, like, I mean, I was probably like fourth grade or something, but like, oh, all of this, all of this media, they don't care about how I am or how happy I am or whether my teeth are white enough or my hair's long enough or whatever. They just want me to buy their product and they will say anything they need to say to get me to buy their product. And that was, that was, was a little existential crisis for a nine-year-old. Well, I know I, I teach college students and it, one of the things I always ask them, um, we, we, we start and I, I mean, I'm in a community college now and, but I used to do this at university too. And I would ask them like, why are you here? Are you here to get a piece of paper that says you're smart because you know, our culture tells you you'll make more money or are you here because you value like learning stuff? Mm-hmm. And so few of them value knowledge for knowledge's sake. They're like, why do I need to know this? I can just Google it. So the idea of knowing something of just being able to, to have a bank of information has very little currency today with the students that I'm encountering. And then on top of that, so many of them don't read. 
Um, like they spend hours on their phone, but they're looking at pictures or they're watching videos. They're not, they're not taking in words. So even something like, what was the last book you read? And they're like, uh, I don't know. I probably read a book in ninth grade or I have some, and they're so proud. Like I've never read a book in my life. I've never finished a book. Why would I do such a thing? And I was like, I now understand why you think that other people aren't real. Like you have no empathy for other people because (laughs) you've never been in the head of a character going through an experience. That's not you. Like you can't imagine why your friend would behave that way because because you have no framework for it. So it goes right. back to that idea of critical thinking and analysis that uh, we're, especially in Florida, our focus on testing, we, we kind of let those skills go. Like if you can take a test, yay, you know, check, you're good, which is a skill, yes, but at the expense of things like critical thinking and analysis. And, you know, I have arguments, especially with, with relatives sometimes where the, the end of the argument is always, well, I just don't believe that. And I was like, well, if you don't believe the information, then there's nothing that anyone can say. We can't have a discussion anymore. So if you're not trusting any source, and it usually it's with politics and things like that, they're like, well, I just don't believe what the government says. I don't believe the CDC. I was like, all right, then there's nothing. I could show you yep. gravity works and you don't believe it. Okay, then jump. Like, I don't, yes. I don't know what else to say. So, and I think it's all sort of the same snowballing effect of, of that issue. Like, I don't, I don't have the framework to analyze anything. So, yeah, that's my rant. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, that's okay. good. This literary briefs episode took a completely serious turn. <laughs> okay. Well, we're slightly over time. So we're going to have to do this. First, what advice would you give to young authors or new authors? I shouldn't say young because it's not an age thing. It's new authors. What advice would you give to newer authors? Great question. So one is keep writing. Two is get feedback. And three, integrate the feedback. And, and I see this a lot, especially in like academic settings when people write a paper and they send it off to the editors and then they get feedback, they get reviews. And there's always like two reviewers who understand what you're trying to do and are trying to help you. And a third reviewer who's just like off the wall and is a jerk. That's ah, fine. But every, when that first happens, everybody gets so upset, myself included. There's a sense of like, oh, how dare they not understand my golden words, you know, and everything's perfect. Well, if other people aren't understanding what you're writing or they're not getting it, then that doesn't mean it's a problem with them. It could be, but it's probably better than assuming you're just a misunderstood genius. It's probably better to try to communicate with them and try to get things across in a way that they too will understand. Because the whole point of writing is to share something. And if nobody's getting it, then that's kind of not as efficient as you'd like it to be. So being able to uh, hear people's feedback and then integrate it and use it to strengthen what you're doing without taking it personally and without putting down the other person. Yeah. We all want to think that every word we write is golden and perfect, but many times that's not true. No. On the first yeah. draft, at least. Well, no, I, I, on the 12th draft, that could not be <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, okay. So how do people find you? Oh, how do people find me? Well, I'm don't available. Don't your home address. I don't know how much of that whiskey you've had. Don't get your home address. No, no, no. I wasn't going to do that. I'm always on the corner of, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you can, <laughs> Jennifer at leadwithwisdom.com is my email. You can always reach me there. And then my website is, I have two websites, leadwithwisdom.com and millennialsguides, both plural, dot com. 
And so the Lead with Wisdom is my business website for consulting. And then millennialsguides.com uh, highlights the current two books, Millennials Guide to Work, Millennials Guide to Management and Leadership. And then I have Millennials Guide to the Construction Trades coming out in October. And then Millennials Guide to Relationships in February and Millennials Guide to Money coming out just in time for tax day. Yep. Oh, my goodness. So helpful out in the world. Okay. This has been amazing having part two with you again. Thoroughly Much fun. amazing. Yes. Absolutely. I'm so glad yeah. Thank you for being back on the podcast. Um, we definitely need to keep in touch, but... Um, oh, wow. I just totally lost my... Oh, yes. We definitely need to keep in touch. I want to hear more about the fiction. Yes. But for this particular podcast, this has been Literary Briefs. I've been Erica Lance. J.M. Piquette. And our guest has been Jennifer Wisdom. We'll see you next time.